the book of 1 John. Not a difficult book to find. If you go to the end of your Bible, take a left, you'll find it very quickly. Tonight we're only going to be looking at um, a couple of verses here, but they're filled with great truth. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thank you, Lord, for your word tonight as we look into it. May we see its truth and may we appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember in chapter 1, John confronted the false ideas that had crept into the church. And then in verses uh, 5 through 10, he exposed the doctrines of the false teachers as untrue doctrines and doctrines that are contrary to the message of Christ. John now transitions uh, to some encouraging words for believers. He wants uh, us to know that as believers in Christ, we can stand righteous before God because of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says some very deep things in verses 1 and 2, but he also says something that's very practical as well. Now I want you to notice what John says in verse 1. He says that he is writing that you sin not. Now, well, John said in verses 8, And in verse 10 of chapter 1, that that's impossible. Remember last week he said, you know, if you say you don't have any sin, then you're a liar. Um, So what is John teaching us then? Well, he's just doing what Jesus did. He's setting the standard at perfection. Remember in Matthew chapter 5 verse 48 when Jesus said, Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no way inherit the kingdom of God. When you hear that, when, when Jesus said, Be ye therefore perfect as your Father which is in heaven, is perfect. You think, man, Jesus, how can anyone be perfect? How can you go without sinning at at all? So what John is doing is the same thing that Jesus did. He's setting the standard. That is the standard. The standard is perfection. Now, Paul talked about this a little bit, but Paul gives us a little bit of of more insight to help us understand exactly what's going on. When he said in Philippians 3 verse 12, he said, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after it, that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. So, So Paul says, look, I'm not perfect, but I'm sure trying to be. I'm striving to be absolutely holy. And so John here is letting us know that God has given us everything that we need to live a righteous life. And so therefore we have no excuse not to aim at the standard of perfection. So you have people who will say, you know what, nobody's perfect and therefore they won't try to be. You understand that? Nobody's perfect, so why try to be? That's the wrong way to look at it. The right way to look at it is this. The standard is perfection. And even if I cannot reach that standard, I still have an obligation to pursue that standard. 
It's like saying, you know what, maybe I'm not going to make a hundred on this, but I'm going to try. I'm going to give it everything that I can. It was Peter who said, you know, that, that God had called us to be holy. It was Peter who also said, you know, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But he also said, he's told you to be holy because he is holy. And so, you know, if you really want to think about the question in a person's life as a Christian, it's this. It's how do I look at my sin? Do I look at my sin and as very flippantly just like, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Everybody's a sinner. If that's the way you look at your sin, you're not looking at your sin the right way. You're right. Nobody's perfect. You're right. We're all sinners. But you know what? We're still called to perfection. We're still called to seek after absolute holiness. Now notice that John calls believers little children. He loves to do that in this book. He does it here. He does it in chapter 2, verse 12. He does it in chapter 2, verse 28. He does it in chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 4, uh, verse 4. Uh, chapter 5, verse 21. He loves to call us little children. And by the way, John 3, 3. John's Gospel 3, 3. John is the one who gives us that phrase, born again. And that's really close to the idea of little children. You have been born again. And so I think that John is teaching us that as believers, we can overcome sin for one simple reason. We're new creatures. We're now the little children of God. We're not who we were before Christ came into our lives. We can't just walk around saying, well, I'm a human and that somehow excuses our sin. Because here's the reality, church. We're not just human. I hear that say, well, we're just human. Well, if you're a Christian, you're not just human. 2 Peter 1.4 says, you are a partaker of the divine nature. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God lives on the inside of you. So you're not just human. It's true that we're born sinners and that according to John 8, 34, we're enslaved to that sin. But the Bible says that when we're born again, when we're saved, we are now slaves to righteousness. Romans 6, verses 17 and 18 says this, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. What does that mean? That means that before we were saved, we were controlled by our sinful nature. But after we're saved, we're no longer a slave to that sinful nature. We're possessed with the very righteousness of Christ, which has been imputed to us, and we are possessed with the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore we've been set free from the bondage of sin, and now we are a slave to righteousness. We are able to live righteous lives. You see, God doesn't want His children to sin. And He has taken great measures to help them overcome their sin and anything that appeals to our flesh. You see, it's our new nature it's our new nature that removes our excuse to sin. You're not just a human anymore. 
You're not just a sinner anymore. You are a saved sinner. You are born again. The Holy Spirit of God now dwells in you. We live in a culture today, even even in our churches, where we're no longer teaching what the Scripture teaches about salvation. We look at salvation as something that's, that's merely something in the mind. Okay, I believe the facts about God. That means I'm going to heaven. And we divorce that from the transformation that takes place when a person is born again when a person is saved that's why for many years we started seeing people saying well you're you're saved but you're still a drunk well you're saved but you're still a drug addict and now it's come to the point now where we even said well you're saved but you're still gay and none of this is, is, is it can measure up to the scripture at all Because the Scripture says you're not who you used to be. Old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new when you get saved. So so it's our new nature, the fact that we've been given a divine nature that now removes this excuse to just sin and live in sin. Now let's look at what John says next. I like John. John, when you read his book, he seems to be one of those guys who anticipates questions. He says, now I I said this and I know that you're going to ask me this next. He's like saying, okay, I said that and now I know everybody's thinking, but we do sin. And what do we do when we sin? And that's why John says, and if any man does sin, why does he say that church? Because he knows we're going to. There's a beautiful balance here he puts out for us. It's not a matter of if we sin, right? It's a matter of when we sin. And he says that if we sin, after we've become the children of God, he says we have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. You see, this is something that I think a lot of Baptists don't understand. When you get saved, God doesn't just bring you to the cross and then say, start over. Now, if you blow it this time, not much I can do with you. I think that's the way that some folks think. I remember hearing on the radio, it was right after I got saved. You know, you live in South Georgia, it ain't hard to get on the radio. Back then, $25 a week would get you a spot. 30 minutes. And I heard some of the worst preaching on the radio that I've ever heard in my life. On South Georgia, radio. I heard some of the worst preaching I've ever heard in my life. I'm not lying to you. I remember I was driving one day. I had just gotten saved. And I listened to whatever preacher I could. And I remember him saying this. Old, old, old preacher said, and I mean, you know, he was, and I got no problem with redneck preachers because I'm an overcoming redneck preacher myself. I'm trying, y'all, you know. Put on these suits on Sundays and do my best. Got no problem with redneck preachers. A lot of them preach the Word of God. But this guy said this. He said, if you sin after you get saved, he said, there's no way you can go to heaven. He said that, y'all. I thought, what? And then he expounded on that. Because he said, there's no way for you to be saved. Now you've done squandered away grace. And I thought to myself, my goodness, nobody's going to heaven then. 
Because John says, look, we sin. But God doesn't just bring us to the cross and say, okay, there it is. If you mess up now, it's, it's, it's over. Jesus is not just our Savior for the sins that we committed before we came to Christ. He's our constant Savior. He's our continual Savior. Even from the sins that we're going to know in the future. And here's the thing. You know, if, if God wasn't going to forgive you for your sins that you would commit in the future, why in the world would He forgive you? Because He knows the sins you're going to commit. Why would He save you in the first place? Right? He knows every sin you're going to commit. Even after you get saved, He knows all the sins you're going to commit. But here's the thing. The, the sacrifice of Christ is so wonderful that it continues to atone for every sin you ever commit. I want, to, I want to look at the description that John gives Jesus in these verses. He calls him our advocate. That is a Greek word, parakletos. Parakletos. And, and in the Greek it means a person who comes alongside. It's a legal term and it describes a defender. It describes a counselor. John uses the same word to describe the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 verse 16. But here, the context suggests that, that it's more of a courtroom terminology that he's using. He's describing Jesus as the ultimate defense attorney who comes to our defense to plead our case before the judge of the universe. Now, I want us to consider a few thoughts as it relates to that. First of all, Jesus will only represent people who admit they're guilty. Jesus is a defense attorney, okay? But He will only represent people who admit that they are guilty. He, he's not like the, the defense attorneys of our day that try to hide their client's guilt. Jesus will not take a case belonging to an innocent person. You say, Jesus, I'm innocent. You say, well, I can't represent you then. Amen? Because I've come to save the sinners. I've come to save the guilty. You know, we need a defense when we stand before God, y'all. We need a defense. And Jesus is the only one who can help us. And until we come to Christ admitting our guilt and saying, I'm a sinner. I need your help. Until that moment, He will not come alongside us. And you know what? If He doesn't come alongside us, here's what will happen. You'll die one day and you'll represent yourself in the courtroom of God. And you'll stand before God as your own defense attorney. And it'll be your job to somehow convince the God of the universe who knows everything you've ever done and knows why you did everything you've ever done, who's never forgotten anything, and you're going to have to convince the God of the universe that you're not guilty. And I want to tell you something, friend, you won't be able to do that. You will not be able to do that. You see, Jesus will only represent those who come to Him and say, I am guilty, and I need your defense. I need one to come alongside of me. The second thing is Jesus is a compassionate counselor. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 uh, that, that he, he knows what it's like to be a human being. That He's been tempted in all ways like we've been tempted. And so when we come to Christ for representation, He doesn't look down at us. When we come to Christ for representation, He looks at us with compassion. 
Because He knows what it's like to be tempted to sin. He knows what it's like to be tempted on every side to commit all types of sins. And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to know that the one who is representing you also loves you. Cares about you. You're not just a number to Him. You're not just a case to Him. He's compassionate towards you. Another thing about the, the legal services of Jesus Christ is it's a pretty good thing. Listen to me now. The legal services of Jesus Christ are free. Amen? They are free. That means that no matter who you are, you can afford Him. Amen? Now that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how broke you are. Christ will come to you. And the greatest thing about having Jesus as your defense attorney is this. He's never lost a case. Amen? He's never lost a case. You know, when, when Christ pleads our case before the Father, we will be pardoned. If you stand before the Father in the courtroom of God and Jesus is by your side, you have nothing to fear. You will be forgiven. There's no charge that can be laid against you. Paul said in, in, in Romans 8, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. And so we see this wonderful advocate, this wonderful defense attorney who only represents the guilty, yet never loses a case. Praise God. That's good. Some of y'all never been to court. That's why you don't get too excited about that. I've stood before more judges than I wanted to before I was saved. I know what it's like to stand in a courtroom and say, oh God, which I didn't pray back then, so I wasn't saying, oh God, in a prayerful way. But I know what it's like to know that there's a man standing up there with a gavel in his hand and your freedom rests upon him. That's a scary thing, folks. And every single one of us will stand in the courtroom of God. And if we do not have Christ as our advocate, we're in trouble. He calls him righteous then. He calls him his advocate. Then he calls him righteous. You see, Jesus doesn't get us off the hook because he's some trickster, because he's some smooth-talking deceiver. He's some Johnny Cochran. If the glove does not fit, you must acquit. That's not why he gets you off. This attorney is completely righteous. He's without sin. In fact, he's the only truly righteous person who ever walked the face of the earth. And it's only by the grace of God that, that, that he would represent us at all. Peter said, For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. See, God never forsook his own righteousness in order to make sinners righteous. Not at all. And what he's going to do now in verse 2 is he's going to explain that. He's going to say, okay, how in the world did this wonderful defense attorney get off guilty people without resorting to some sinful thing? How did he do that? He's going to explain that to you in verse 2. And He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation, big word, it means satisfaction. It means appeasement. 
And the concept of propitiation is one of the most important concepts in all of Christianity. You throw this idea away, you have lost Christianity. Propitiation is the work of the cross. There's a whole lot of verses we could look to to explain what I'm about to. There's a whole lot of beautiful hymns we could sing as well. But I just want us to think about a few. Listen to Romans 3.25. It says, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, listen to this part, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Now what does that mean? Well, Paul's point is God wanted to justify sinful humanity. God wanted to save sinners. But God's holy. And because God is holy, and He has said that He will punish sin, He has to punish sin. So in order to be consistent with His desire for justice and also His desire to save sinners, He punishes Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. That's what propitiation is. And that was God's plan from eternity. And in this amazing plan, when you really look at it and you really think about it, you see this, that sin is punished and sinners are forgiven. Only God could think of such a beautiful plan. How do you punish sin and still let sinners into heaven? You and I could have formed committee after committee and tried to figure out how in the world we would ever do that and we would never come up with a way that worked. But God says, this is how you do it. You take all the sins of the world and you put them on Christ. And on Christ, you punish Him. And in that way, all the sins are being atoned for. And now sinners can come into heaven as well. That is the wisdom of God, church. So yet, we're sinners. And we have this advocate. But how does this advocate let us into heaven as sinners? This is the beauty of it. The death of Jesus on the cross satisfies the wrath of God. We're reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. Jesus was punished for us and now we've been brought to God. Peter talks about it when he says, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So Peter says here that, that, that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He's without sin at all. And He willingly takes upon Himself the punishment for our sin. That's what propitiation means. Propitiation means God took the sins of the world, laid them on Jesus, and punished Jesus as if He had committed all the sins of the world. And now the anger, the wrath of God has been turned away from those who believe in Christ because on Christ the sins of the world were punished. It's a beautiful thing, church. And it is a primary doctrine of the Christian faith. It's what we mean when we sing those old songs about the cross. 
It's what we mean when we sing, you know, uh, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It's what we mean when we sing at Calvary. We could go on and on about how so many of our hymns focus on this one simple subject. The subject of propitiation. That God punished Jesus for us. Now John ends verse 2 by telling us about the scope of Jesus' sacrifice. That His sacrifice is sufficient for the whole world. In other words, it's not just the Jewish people who could be saved. It's not just poor people who could be saved. It's not just rich people. It's not just people who lived in the first century who could be saved. But anyone living in any age who's willing to come to Christ can have their sins removed. They can be cleansed. God's not a respecter of persons. What a wonderful Savior that is, church. What a wonderful Savior that is. You know, when somebody knocks on my door, I don't know if I'm going to let them in or not. Amen? I got a peephole. Don't you? I might yell at them through the door. Because I'm a human. But the wonderful thing about our great God is that He won't turn a one away. And my Father's house are many mansions. Amen? And He invites the world by faith in Jesus Christ to come into these. The whole world won't be saved. But it could be. If it were willing to turn from its sin and put its faith in Jesus Christ. We know that's not going to happen. But it could. Why won't most people have their sins forgiven? Well, most people won't because they're going to refuse to acknowledge their sin. And when you refuse to acknowledge your sin, you refuse the representation of Jesus Christ. You say, I don't need you. I don't need you at all. And then you stand in the courtroom of God one day, and it doesn't take but a second, and you lose your case. And when you lose your case, you lose your soul. And when you lose your soul, listen to me, you lose any hope of appeal. You know, I worked in a prison for a long time, and you know what keeps some of those guys going? The hope of an appeal. Some of them, that's all they do. They're riding them up. They're having people ride them up for them. Appeal after appeal after appeal. They've got a life sentence, but they've got hope because I can ride an appeal. I can ride an appeal. Maybe this appeal will go through. And that's what keeps those guys who have life sentences going. An appeal. The possibility of an appeal. But listen, if you die without Christ, there's no hope of an appeal. When the gavel hits the wood, your guilt is announced. You are taken out of that courtroom. And that's the end, friend. That's a sad day, isn't it? That's why it's so important that you have an advocate. John's word here are not discouraging to us who believe in Christ. They're encouraging for us because we know we've got our advocate. But the ones who don't know Christ... They're very, very discouraging words. 
You know, in the beginning, uh, I said the real question is, how concerned am I about my sin? And if you want to know where you are with God, that's a great question to ask yourself. Not just the moment you get saved, but how do you view your sin every day? If, if you view your sin, well, I'm saved, therefore now I can sin. You've made a terrible mistake, friend. But if you view your sin like this, Lord, I've sinned again. Thank God I have you. Thank God I have Christ. You see, that's why a Christian should be the most humble person on earth. Because each and every day they recognize their sin. And they recognize that they need to be cleansed every day. So the real question is this, how concerned am I about my sin? And remember that it's our new nature that removes our excuses to sin. We never lay down on our sin and say, well, this is just who I am. This is just what I do. I'm just a sinner, so I'll sin. We stand up and we say, no, I'm a child of God. No, I'm not who I was. I have a new heart. I have a new spirit. I have a new mind. I have new desires. And I have the power of the Holy Spirit to, to live in victory. You know, the new brand... The, this is something really important. The new brand of Christianity wants to get us to stop talking about sin and righteousness so much. Let's not talk about sin. Let's not talk about righteousness. They don't want us to talk about this. But here's the thing. That's all the Bible really talks about at all. You hear me? If you don't believe me, just read it. All the Bible really talks about it all, if you're going to summarize it, is sin and righteousness. And that's why John is dealing with that here. And there's only one Savior who can help us. Not if we find ourselves in God's courtroom, but when we find ourselves in God's courtroom. There's only one Savior. Who could help us? You know, I remember when I was a kid, if something happened and um, I got sick or something, uh, and I had to stay home from school, uh, there were some cool shows that came on. Like Price was Right, and that was always fun to watch when I was a kid. Back when Bob Parker was telling us to get our pets, spayed and neutered. I mean, God forbid, after one, it was awful. Because it was the stories. You know, little boys don't want to watch the stories. But somewhere around 10 or 11, there was Perry Mason. Y'all remember Perry Mason? That's not my life, is it? That's Perry Mason, right? It's the old black and white Perry Mason. And I can remember as a kid watching those things, man. And Perry Mason would always be like a. Uh, this case that nobody could win. And you think, oh boy, this person's going to jail. And in the end, somehow Perry Mason would figure this stuff out. And, and you know, it would just be an amazing way and in dramatic fashion in the end, the person would not be convicted of, of their guilt. But you know what? That's make-believe. Isn't it? There's not a lawyer out there that doesn't lose a case. And when it comes to the courtroom of God, 
None of you are Perry Mason. None of you can do it. Only Christ can. Only Christ can. I hope you know him today. Father in heaven, we're grateful for the love that you've shown us in revealing to us tonight that even though we're sinners, we have an advocate. And his name is Christ Jesus. Lord, may we each day be humbled by the wonderful fact that you cleanse us every day. That you wash us new every day. And that even though we're guilty, you represent us. Thank you for that, Lord. I do pray as we go out this week that you would help us, remind us that we are to be humble because none of us in here can say we're without sin. But you would also remind us to be diligent, to be overcomers, and to live in victory because we are not who we were. We are now the children of God, born again, born from above. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.